in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby. Done. Friends. Romans. Countrymen. Or women. Or country people. I know I often kick off the show by calling you deadbeats. And in a way, that feels more appropriate than ever this week. Because today's show 
is about marijuana, which stereotypically deadbeats smoke a lot of. But also, not anymore and not so. Because as you're about to hear, there are fewer and fewer deadbeats involved in the marijuana business. As more and more states legalize, the cannabis is going mainstream. Cannabis, by the way, is not me making a pun. That is really what people call it. And so as often happens when capitalism and government get involved in anything, the results so far are, you guessed it, pretty racist and classist. Off we go. Welcome to another installment of Bad With Money, you sexy deadbeats. So as it currently stands, nine states, as well as the District of Columbia, have legalized marijuana for recreational use. Alaska, Maine, Massachusetts, Colorado, Nevada, Hawaii, California, Oregon, and Washington. Hey, that's the entire West Coast. I knew I moved out here for a reason. This means that weed, a drug that the federal government still classifies in the same category as heroin, LSD, and cocaine, and still considers it a felony to sell, is readily available at licensed shops throughout those states, which is confusing for everyone. So to help us sort through this complex legal moment, I spoke to Vox's Herman Lopez, who has been covering the legalization story nationwide. So far, the biggest way that these measures have advanced are voter-led efforts, so referendums and those kinds of ballot initiatives. And yeah, usually one of the biggest ways that these are sold, particularly to people who are in the middle of this issue, is the t- potential for tax revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Colorado in particular, there was a lot of emphasis on the fact that this tax revenue could be used to build up schools and that kind of thing. And the money was specifically allocated for some school construction. How much money, I mean, just in, in as an example, in Colorado, like how much are they getting? Do you know? It fluctuates from month to month, but I can tell you that like they allocated $40 million towards school construction in particular in Colorado. Oh, my God. Depending on the state, you can see tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue on a yearly basis. It, I mean, it's a lot of money that can go to these programs that were previously underfunded. In the end, if, if your state is having like serious budget problems, those are like budgets that add up to billions of dollars. So it, it's not going to single-handedly solve those budget problems, mm-hmm. but it is money that wasn't there before and is suddenly going to be able to go to a lot of programs that just weren't getting funding before. Yeah. What are some of these programs that get an infusion of funding by like marijuana legalization besides schools? Besides schools, you have seen like some of the money go to um, drug education, that kind of Mm. thing, because there's there's a big concern, obviously, that with marijuana legalization, there will be more use and therefore you might have problems related to that. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's also been along those lines, more funding to treatment, more funding to law enforcement. Uh, There is a lot of money, I should say, just dedicated to taking care of drug problems. That's so interesting because I feel like that's such a a neglected thing. My my dad is a, a drug addict and alcoholic. He's sober now, but it feels like that was such a neglected thing where there was no, no, like, especially in Florida where we're from, there was no like programs that were getting any amount of money. I think even now he tells me that there's just like nothing for that kind of stuff. Right. The, the, I mean, the federal government does give grants for addiction treatment in general, but you can just look at the statistics. One statistic from a 2016 report by the Surgeon General, it found that 
about 10% of people with a substance use disorder get specialty treatment. That alone tells you that a lot of people, potentially nine in 10 of people who need treatment are not getting it. And yeah, there's re- no money. And the, the report says that, yeah, it's just uh, there's a serious lack of supply. And obviously, in the context of particularly the opioid crisis, it's a very big deal, right? That like the, mm-hmm. a lot of people do not have access to treatment. So at least with some of this legalization money, I mean, again, I, I should emphasize that this is like not enough money to fix that problem by right. its own, on its own. But it is a significant amount of cash that will help the mm-hmm. push this in the right direction at the very least. Are other states seeing states that have legalized marijuana and are is that jump starting? Like, is the positive effects like jump starting the conversation in other states? I'm not sure how much it is jump starting yet, mm-hmm. but let's say that California's marijuana in- industry takes off. I mean, this will be a multi billion dollar, very large industry. That will also bring a lot of lobbying power that didn't exist before for this mm-hmm. legal industry. And like tobacco. Right, exactly. I mean, like tobacco and alcohol and other industries. And they're going to start pushing if they want to expand, which obviously they do, for the end of federal and state restrictions on Mm -hmm. marijuana sales. And that that could also help jumpstart some of these initiatives, even beyond just like legislators or voters saying, hey, that looks like enticing revenue. So marijuana has like this homey, boutique-y feel, right? And and. So like you read these stories on Twitter that are like couples starting an edible business out of their kitchen or, you know, like all that kind of stuff. But they're not going to be able to afford the costs associated with licensing as legalization becomes more prevalent. So is this kind of a thing where it becomes like big marijuana, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, just just about everyone expects that over time there will be big companies that will come in, really set up shop, and they'll take over the industry exactly as you've seen with like alcohol and tobacco. There will Mm -hmm. still be like, just as there are small brewers, there will still be some like small marijuana boutiques and that kind of thing, particularly at the local level. But Mm -hmm. nationally, you are going to see this bigger marijuana industry. I think the biggest hurdle right now is actually federal prohibition. So uh, even though like California legalized marijuana, it's still illegal for it to for like California producers to ship over marijuana to, say, Colorado because mm-hmm. that's interstate trafficking and that's banned under federal law. So that that once that federal law comes out, or I guess I should say if that federal law goes out, that's when I would expect to see big marijuana really take off. Although you are already seeing some bigger companies, bigger investors come in and start kind of like setting standards saying like, we're going to be the the big grower in this state and that kind of thing. So, so you're already seeing some of the seeds planted there. Seeds planted. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Very um, creative. Uh, thanks. I have to, I have a problem with wordplay. <laughs> okay. Um, so Jeff Sessions wrote a memo reversing the Obama era policy on marijuana. And uh, I also read that it's hard for businesses to find banks that are willing to process their payments. Is there any indication that the lack of federal clarity on this issue is dissuading states from legalizing or are there legal marijuana providers who are just running around with with cash? Like, is it just a cash thing? Yeah, I mean, on the banking front, there are some solutions that states and cities have tried to come up with, like credit unions specifically dedicated to marijuana that are local or state based so they won't run into the kinds of federal laws that that bigger banks are concerned about. Yeah. And and that's helped some places. But in general, yeah, you do see a lot of these businesses run around with basically cash, which obviously creates all sorts of problems and like 
serious public safety concerns in that if you're like it, it makes marijuana shops a target for robbers since they know that they'll be able to get a ton of cash out of those businesses. Um, so that's a big thing. And on the sessions memo, I mean, he essentially directed prosecutors telling them that they can now crack down on marijuana businesses in a way that they were advised not to under the Obama administration. But so far you haven't really seen prosecutors take him up on that. Yeah. I feel like they're just like, "Mm, you know what? We're busy. (laughs) Yeah. Like we have, you know, we have like murders and other actual crimes to go after. This seems like really small. All Um, these prosecutors just being like, who's going to be the narc? None of y'all better be the narc. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, it's just unclear. Like what will happen as, Mm -hmm. and in fact, like Vermont after this memo happened, passed a law where it legalized marijuana possession, not sales, but just Mm -hmm. marijuana possession. And that kind of suggests that like states aren't really that worried about Mm -hmm. what session said. Yeah. So obviously we started to hear about marijuana legalization and now it's like more towards like commercialization. So is that part of the effort on the part of cannabis advocates to get people to think about it as more of like a revenue opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I should say it depends on the state what like marijuana policy advocates are really smart in that they go to different places with different ideas of what will work there. So in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., which legalized marijuana possession, again, not sales through a ballot initiative, they were really ran a campaign focused on the racial justice aspect of this issue. So in D.C., just like every other state, marijuana arrests and and those kinds of things are very racially disproportionate in that they they arrest way more black people for marijuana, even though black and white people use marijuana at similar rates. So that's something that was really helpful for the D.C. campaign. And that's what they ran with. In other states, like, say, more centrist purple states like Colorado, you do focus more on the see more focus on the jobs, taxes, Mm -hmm. Regulating like alcohol is the language they use again, invoking like, hey, this is a an industry that gives you jobs. The alcohol industry gives you jobs. So can the marijuana industry. So that's it. Really depends. But I think over time, especially as you get into more of these red or purple states, you are going to see more emphasis on the tax and job side, since that's mm-hmm. really what's going to bring a lot of those people on the fence over. Is there any kind of um push back because of, you know, the money made from private prisons versus the money you would make from taxing marijuana? I think one thing is that like private prisons actually are not that big of a part of the criminal justice system. It's something like fewer than 10% of prisons are actually private prisons. Like one, one, another way to think about this is like when a prison is going to shut down in say California or, or New York, like a mm-hmm. public prison, the biggest people who might be pushing to keep that prison open are actually public sector workers. Like th- this is just one thing I want to point out is that there actually is a, an, a financial incentive within the public sector as not just a private sector to keep mass incarceration going. And that's that's something you do mm-hmm. tend to see in that like law enforcement tend to be the biggest opponents of marijuana legalization when these initiatives come up, talking prosecutors, talking police and and that kind of thing. And that's because, I mean, for them, this is one of the things that keeps them employed, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's it's a lot easier to justify your job when you have this many arrests. And if a lot of those arrests are marijuana related, then you probably have a financial incentive to keep criminalization going. 
As you can imagine, this whole environment of legal uncertainty and massive financial potential has created an absolute mess when it comes to criminal justice and economic opportunity. After the break, we'll embrace the chaos. Welcome back to the show. I had a pretty amazing conversation with my next guest, reporter Amanda Chicago Lewis, who's written extensively about the business and criminal justice implications of legal marijuana. What she's found is truly bizarre, deeply troubling, and sadly, not at all surprising. The first thing we talked about was marijuana patents and a man named Mowgli Holmes. Mowgli I met at a big cannabis conference, um, sort of the biggest cannabis business conference of the year is in Las Vegas. And he had been tracking the existence of these pretty wide ranging um, cannabis plant patents. Mm -hmm. And he was really freaked out about them. And he implored me to look into it. And so I did. Yeah, the story unfolds like this really crazy, cool mystery. But like what in brief, what did he what was he concerned about? Um, so basically, he was concerned that these folks were picking up patents on the cannabis plant that would give them very strong intellectual property control over how the plant was grown and researched and sold. So essentially, if they started enforcing the patents that they already have, they could be charging growers, dispensaries, researchers, uh, all those folks a fee. And so, wow. and I think part of it was, you know, these people making a huge business land grab, right? Like saying we own all of this intellectual property of these plants and maybe the possibility that because cannabis is an illegal substance, there's not a lot of evidence in the public domain of what's been sold before on the black market. So oh. he was you know, partially concerned about the fact that, well, there's all these illegal growers who've, you know, been working on their own strains for a long time who have no way to prove to the patent office that they are the people who bred those strains because none of it was public because it was all illegal. Mm -hmm. But then the other like much more interesting thing to me was the sort of medical implication. There are compounds that occur in cannabis that like we don't really know that much about yet mm -hmm. um, because we haven't had that many strains that are widely available that are really high in sort of specific uncommon compounds. And at this point, people are really only familiar with THC, which is the thing that gets you high, and then cannabidiol or CBD, which has mm -hmm. become really popular in the last couple of years. But there's a couple of other like really significant compounds. And so basically, until we're able to do f like real research on this stuff, we don't even know the whole extent of what some of these um, compounds could be doing in various combination with each other for different diseases. Mm -hmm. And so if one company owns the intellectual property for all of these different variations of cannabis, it feels like it's much less likely that there's going to be, you know, a flourishing of research when federal legality comes and it's easier to do clinical trials and stuff like that. And so the medical implications were really alarming to me. Because um, they was, could jack up the prices, you said. Right, exactly. And because they could basically control who does research and who doesn't do research. <sighs> or they could charge such high fees for the research that makes it just difficult for anyone other than them to do research, which would mean, you know, does that mean that we're not going to get as much research into maybe diseases that are, uh, just as an example, you know, think about how pharma operates, right? Like we don't get 
cheap medicine for diseases that tend to maybe occur in, you know, people who live in poverty, but mm-hmm, you get like mm-hmm. all this research into Viagra or you get all this mm-hmm. research into something that is maybe aimed at like a wealthier, like yep. usually male population. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we not going to like get the kind of research that we really could have, you know, where everyone's looking into different aspects of what cannabis can and cannot do? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a, a, a stat in your piece, which is that cannabis, the cannabis industry is worth an estimated $40 billion, second only to the corn industry. So what what is a utility patent? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So part of the thing about um, these patents, right, is that the utility patent on plants is the strongest form of intellectual property protection that you could have. I didn't even know people could have patents on plants. Right? So you couldn't have patents on plants until the 1980s. Or this type of patent, the utility patent. Weird. Um, and when they first became available, it was for uh, genetically modified plants. Okay. Um, as, you know, the end of the 20th century played out, like companies started acquiring utility patents on non-genetically modified plants. So like really rare plants. And the point is, you know, you have to prove this hasn't been sold before and you have to sort of show like, you know, this is ours. However, that's like really hard to do. There was Mm -hmm. like a guy who got a utility patent on like this bean, a bean that's like very popular in Mexico. And it took like 10 years and millions of dollars to overturn to prove like, no, you just took this bean. Wow. So, okay. So what did you find out? Like, who's Biotech Institute? Right. So the patents are like public record, right? The fact that they exist yeah. is public record. You can look through the patents, and then if you understand how to read patents, you can see how they did the research. There's three names on the patents of the people who sort of are the patent inventors and, like, developed them. And then they're assigned to this LLC that seems to have, like, no other assets. And then in the public record, you can see the name of the person who supposedly runs this um, LLC. And that guy is an attorney who's based in Century City here in Los Angeles. And that was sort of all the information um, Mm -hmm. that was available. But it wasn't really clear, you know, what these people were going to do with the patents and, like, what the sort of larger plan was. Mm -hmm. But I did find all these other associated companies essentially with the name of this attorney in Century City and, you know, this just sort of different variations and combinations of the same group of people in all these different companies, Um, you know, one of which owns a marijuana cultivation in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., you know, like one of which is like consultants on political stuff in Los Angeles and other places, one of which has like some of the most prominent cannabis scientists in the world involved, but is technically not working with the cannabis plant. I mean, basically, I found all these different businesses that seem to maybe be affiliated with each other insofar as they had the same addresses listed Mm -hmm. as headquarters and they had like the same group of people in different iterations involved. And then, you know, it seemed to be separated out largely for legal reasons because it's very complicated in terms of like cannabis, running a cannabis business and also not being able to um, use the banking system or take deductions on your Mm -hmm. taxes if you so-called touch the plant, meaning if you like grow or if you sell or something like that. So there was all this like 
separation and sort of obfuscation around like what was going on with this company. And then of course they refused to like just sit down and talk to me about what they were doing, yeah, which made why, it much more confusing. <laughs> why? And why was everyone so spooked to talk to you about it? You know, it's, it's, I mean, like, obviously I can't really speculate for like other people's intentions. Um, but you know what? Someone did tell me that they, they have to be careful talking about the patents on the record because if they say anything about their intentions or about, you know, the scope of what they, what they think the patents include, that could somehow, um, mess with their ability to enforce them in the broadest way possible in the future. Mm -hmm. So that might've been a reason why they didn't want to talk about it in too much detail without mm -hmm. going through like a heavily lawyered statement, which is what ultimately we sort of got from them. Were they pissed about your article? Cause they're trying to operate this thing like on the DL and then you're like, here's an article. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's, it's funny cause it's like, I really wanted people to be aware of, of the course. fact that these patents exist mm -hmm. because I think it's just important to know about in terms of like, you know, is this something that is fair um, to With other people a... who've already been breeding for a long time? Yeah, like, are these legitimate? Important upcoming industry, like to then immediately fall to the same shit <laughs> that we already have. Yeah. It's like, no. That's the whole, it's the whole marijuana industry. It's all, it's just a perfect replication of everything that already exists with a, like a good helping more of sketchiness because uh, the federal illegality mm -hmm. creates these like weird unsupervised pockets and yeah, it's pretty messed up. We've got plenty more with Amanda Chicago Lewis after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to my conversation with reporter Amanda Chicago Lewis, who recently visited my house and told me a host of horror stories about the people who are poised to get extremely rich from legal marijuana, as well as the folks who are being shut out. I've been reporting on the marijuana industry for five or six years at this point mm -hmm. um, and sort of noticed there's sort of three types of people and it all sort of is dependent on your appetite for risk. Sure. Like how much are you willing to break the laws, right? And so outlaws are people who got involved in marijuana before they had any idea that legalization might happen or with no real intention of ever being legal. Mm -hmm. Then on the total, you know, other side of the spectrum, the green rushers are people who just got involved in weed uh, when they knew it was going to be legal mm -hmm. and who are very like reluctant to do anything breaking the law and are very often want to do what are known as like ancillary businesses or put money into things where they don't touch the marijuana plant. That's not putting their assets at any type of risk. It's the sort of safest way to get involved. Uh, and then in the middle, there's the people that I think are the most powerful in the industry, which I call code switchers, um, who essentially speak black market and speak legal market and can sort of go between the two of those worlds comfortably. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think are most poised to succeed right now. And that's mostly white people? It is mostly white people, but it's also a combination. I mean, I think what you're referring to is a larger systemic issue in the industry in terms of access mm -hmm. uh, and the results of the war on drugs that are, are 
messing with the chance can I curse <laughs> no yeah yeah <laughs> that are fucking with yeah people of color in a you know wildly disproportionate way um so, so yeah I mean obviously you know anytime you see any writing or tweet about like suburban moms start cool cannabis rice crispy company yeah. make billion dollars and inevitably thank goodness someone will respond and be like um like Black people are disproportionately in jail for this same thing. And this has become like, as marijuana gets legalized, like way more um, the response to to this type of thing. And you talk about it in in your, uh, I think in the BuzzFeed piece. Yeah. Can you just sum that up a little bit? Yeah. So I did this investigation mostly in the second half of 2015 uh, into the sort of status of people of color in the marijuana industry. Sure. Um, Minimal. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, but be, I well, mean, because you can't, you say you can't work if you've gotten right. prior drug arrest. Right. So in most places, yeah. and this is not everywhere and it's not in California, but California, it's messy in its own myriad ways. But um, in most places, you cannot work in the marijuana industry, meaning even just as a bud tender, mm -hmm. but really as an owner, as an investor, if you have a drug felony on your record. And in some places, if you have a drug misdemeanor um, wow. and white people who've been working on the illicit market with marijuana are fairly unlikely to have a drug felony on their record. Yeah, because it's usually like an excuse to bust down a door or whatever in a neighborhood that was already over police. Right, exactly. I mean, we know that the war on drugs has disproportionately affected black people specifically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not only in terms of arrests and targeting, but in terms of prosecution. So, you know, I know white people who were working with weed on the illicit market who, you know, <laughs> if they had been black, probably would have a felony, but were able to plea it down to a misdemeanor yeah. and now are fine. Yeah. And so people who are white, who worked on the illicit market with weed are killing it. Like the code switchers, but also the outlaws. Mm -hmm. Like I met somebody last night. I was at this like investor thing. Um, and I met this like, you know, middle-aged white guy who looked total bankery type, had a suit on. And I was like, how did you get involved in this industry? And he's like, I've been working with weed my whole life. He was like, I've been doing this for 15 years. And I was like, okay, so this person was for sure like a drug, a drug dealer, dealer, yeah, like broke lots of laws. And now, you know, is walking into this mansion in Bel Air with me, you know, mm -hmm. a post like, you know, investor gathering of all these like older white men in suits and like beautiful <laughs> ladies who were like brought in for this party. This was quite an evening. Um, and just disguised with everyone mm -hmm. else. And then of course, the drug felony thing is one thing. Then there's disproportionate law enforcement on people who own dispensaries in markets where it's sort of unclear what's legal and what's not legal. And anytime there's sort of like a lack of clarity or there's a gray area, something that can't be fully enforced, like marijuana, mm -hmm. like speeding, you're always going to see disproportionate enforcement on people of color mm -hmm. because there's this like assumption that people of color have some like natural criminality to them. Yeah. And your article gets more into that. If people yeah. should read it, it gets more into like even like media representation of black addicts and like um, articles dating back to like the early 1900s about uh, like, you know, black people being on drugs and, and mentioning that their race and the drug specifically in newspaper articles. So like, go and read that. Cause that's, that gives you a lot of context. Yeah, no. And I mean, really going back to, you know, 
the drug felony stuff, which is just like the law is having a racially uh, disparate impact. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Then there's the stuff that's just like, you know, the banker goes into the party and is looking for somebody that he feels like he can bro down with. Right. And that's the person he's going to invest in. And and the hi- the hiring is racist. And also, like, I think they're worried. Of, you, you mentioned, like, hiring white drivers and, like, right. just worried about getting pulled over right. and blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, that's also a big thing, especially if it's, like, visual. But I think and part of that was the fact that all of these unintended consequences of the distance between state law and federal law. Mm-hmm. But additionally, California specifically not getting its shit together and having really like regulated clarity between the difference uh between what's legal and what's not legal Mm -hmm. like there was like really no clarity Mm -hmm. for a lot of people in the difference between what's legal and what's not legal until this year and even this year it's pretty confusing for a lot of people like do you know we both live in los angeles there's about almost two thousand marijuana dispensaries in los angeles do you know how many of those are legal no, I know a lot of them aren't. Like 175. Whoa. Interesting. All those other shops are illegal. So, okay, yeah. can we? Let's go back to the BuzzFeed article, which was called Whitewashing the Green Rush, which we're kind of circling back to right now. Um, so what happened with um, Unique Henderson? Ah, Unique. So Unique was a teenager in Oklahoma. He was like with a couple of friends in a park and they were like, rolling a joint or something or rolling a blunt and the police showed up Mm -hmm. and it was unique two white guys and a latino guy Mm -hmm. and literally the police told the white guys to leave (gasps) and charged unique and the latino guy with felonies what yeah for for just possession of like a gram is it just if you can you not work in the in the weed industry if you have an arrest for another drug any drug arrest. Any dr- well, it's not arrest. It's conviction of okay, a felony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's any drug. Huh. But, I mean, marijuana is the one that's, like, a little ironic. Um, mm-hmm. Or more than a little ironic, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Especially since people who have expertise in growing marijuana are so sought after in right. the industry. Because guess what? It's a crop. It's hard to grow. Right. So that's what happened with Unique. Yeah. So Unique had these felonies from when he was a teenager uh, and was literally just like smoking with his friends in a park. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't even like a dealer. He wasn't growing. Right. Then he happened to be living in Colorado when legalization happened. He was like, I should get in on this. And he like paid for a class to like help him, you know, learn about legal weed. And then he like applied for a job at a dispensary and he got rejected. And he was like, what happened? And they were like, you have a drug felony on your record. We can't let you work here. And he was like... <gasps> What? But I'm the perfect candidate. Exactly. And meanwhile, you know, there's white people who have been growing tons of weed for years and years and years who are running major companies. So, I mean, I've heard, you know, people talking about why don't we let people out of jail for this? Right. So, you know, individual states are offering expungement. Yeah. Individual district attorneys are making it possible to get things overturned. Um, I think Oregon has sort of taken the lead on this. California is doing okay, but I'm pretty sure the um, Los Angeles prosecutors were not allowing um, this to proceed in the same way as it has in other places. And Massachusetts, I think, is also doing doing an okay job at this. So let's can we talk a little bit about attracting investors into your weed business? Yeah. Like, what, what do you what do you need to do to to attract investors? It's totally 
I mean, it's it's a vibe thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that I think this is right. the same. I think this is the same thing in every industry, and I think this is a lot of what you know when you read really good reporting around um, racial and gender bias in the tech industry. You're going to see similar stuff, right? You're yeah. going to see, oh, founders that want to you know work with people that remind them of themselves. And mm-hmm. I think the other thing is that cannabis because it's federally illegal, mm-hmm. you can't get loans or raise money in mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the traditional ways. And so you are very reliant on private equity and what's known as family offices and essentially like borrowing money from people you know mm-hmm. and who has access to that capital, who knows someone who knows someone, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, obviously already, even if you could get loans, um, banks are racially biased in terms of who they give loans to. Like we know that yeah, that's true. Yeah, we've talked about that on but, the show. But at the same time, the problem is exacerbated by the fact that there's federal illegality. You have to get the money from, yes. you know, a really rich human being that you personally convince to give you the money. Yes. And those people tend to be pretty racist. <laughs> 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 I just have conversations with people sometimes where they're just like, they're like, oh yeah, like rappers, or they'll just say something weirdly dismissive and racist, and it's like, mm-hmm. or oh god, like the word ghetto. Yes, there's something about like white Gen Xers that like nobody understands that the word ghetto is not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, things are great. So back back to this. So this last question is about optimism. Uh, no, it really is. Uh, like, so how do we catch up in terms of like the social justice aspect of legalization? And like, how do we, I mean, is it going to get worse before it gets better, essentially? I mean, I think that some of the biggest problems in cannabis, you know, racial or otherwise, are because of the federal illegality. If you live in public housing, you can't be using cannabis, right? Mm. You can still get drug tested for your job. For medical marijuana? Yeah, for everything. You can still get drug tested for your job in basically every state. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, are positive for cannabis, you could get fired. Um, You know, you could still get evicted from your house. Even if it's not public housing, your landlord could just kick you out because you were smoking weed, right? So I think making more things legal, like making it easier for the average person to consume cannabis in like a, at a social location at like the bar equivalent of, you know, uh, of weed Mm -hmm. or making it so that it's okay to use in public housing. It's okay to test positive if you are, um, you know, an athlete. Yeah. So there's so many different small things that are going to hit people of color disproportionately around cannabis. And I guess making as much of it legal as possible and keeping, unfortunately, keeping the taxes as low as possible Mm -hmm. and keeping the licensing fees as low as possible, which ends up being a problem when local and state governments are incentivized to participate in legalization because they think they're going to make all this money off of the fees and the taxes. Yeah. But the higher you make the taxes, the fewer black market operators are going to want to buy into the legal system. Right. So what do we do there? Right. We have to make, we have to, but if, but if, you know, Republicans are only going to agree with legalization, if there's really high taxes and there's sort of like an economic incentive, mm-hmm. it suddenly becomes a very complicated situation. 
I know, you guys. Look, I know. You're all like, Gabby, will you ever stop telling us all the things we love are actually awful and racist? And I mean, I probably won't do that. I am a noted buzzkill. But also, there's no reason the marijuana industry has to be exclusionary and cruel to people of color. And after the break, we'll meet two women fighting to change the narrative. Stay tuned for some positivity. We're back, and it's time to meet Nina Parks and Sunshine Lencho. Nina is also the founder of a cannabis delivery service, and Sunshine is an attorney specializing in the cannabis industry. And they both are two of the women behind Supernova, a nonprofit organization that hosts workshops and participates in education and advocacy efforts to make sure that women of color have the opportunity to take their rightful place at the forefront of the legal marijuana industry. As Nina and Sunshine told me, that's no easy task. So in your work, like, what are the challenges that women of color are facing in the cannabis industry uniquely. I know that that you could go on and on about that, but yeah, what are some of the big ones? Still interfacing with patriarchy is mm-hmm. a, a pain in the butt too. So capitalism and patriarchy, right? Cap and Pat are are our nemesis. <laughs> the other thing too is like the the regulation makes for a very unsafe environment. So if you're talking about what are some of the challenges for women of color in cannabis or just women in cannabis in general? they still have this as a cash business for the most part. You know, it's really hard to get a bank account. So, um, we, I mean, everyone's getting creative about how to be able to do that because it is unsafe to have a cash business, you know. So, like, the level of security right. and the amount of money, we have to have 24-hour security in the new regulations, the new emergency regulations that they just put out. They want 24-hour security. We wouldn't need 24-hour security if we can have a bank account. You know, <laughs> yeah. And so, to women of color who are interested in transitioning into the space, you know, I, it's interesting to watch um, all of our colleagues, our cohort, our friends of women who have been in the Bay Area and elsewhere throughout California and the nation um, grow into different roles in transition. You have to stay agile. You have to keep an eye to what the future may hold. You have to stay up on the regulations. You need to be okay with repeating yourself a million times. And then you have to face the same discrimination that we face in other uh, environments where people will discount your expertise regardless of your credentials. They will repeat what they heard a man say, even if it's exactly what you said six months before. Um, You know, they're going to think that you're a front for some unlawful business. Um, That happens more often than I'm, I'm comfortable with to women of color where we, we're, we must just be drug mules as opposed to legitimate business owners. And then there's just sort of the, um, the intangibles, the, the, the type of discrimination that's not overt that we see, where um, if I ask for something and it's reasonable and well thought out and founded in the law, people are reluctant to, but if someone else sends someone else to speak about the exact same thing, they're more receptive. So, you know, you, you spend a lot of time thinking of ways to present the facts in the place and in the environment in the best way that will that will get traction. And, you know, we have been together as Supernova Women since 2015. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about these issues since before there was even a legalization initiative. And it's only now, two and three years later, that the same people we approached are now coming to the table to talk to us about racial and social justice in cannabis. And I think also... 
for a lot of the communities, especially if you were harassed by police officers or um, or if you were even in the black market before, like there's a, a sense of like distrust of a system, right? So you're like, why do I want to put my name on a list? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like it's it's crazy. We have we have a set a unique sense of um, mental health and emotional hurdles uh, to be able to get past as well. Seeing how there's a huge amount of stigma in our like in our communities still around it. Um, many of uh, like the black community that we tried to outreach to before um, were very hesitant to even engage with us in 2014 and 2015 because it was so taboo still, right, because of the level of enforcement um, and also the demonization of their communities because of drugs, um, as opposed to seeing it and being empowered as a community um, to know that we have um, a really great opportunity to take back what's ours, right? And then, so we have to break these stigmas. We have to get past um, our mental health barriers around um, the perception of our position in here and really just step up because there's, you know, like there's white folks that are just coming in. They don't even have the issue of trying to look at themselves in their mirror and, uh, and say that they belong. They already feel that way. They're conditioned to feel like they belong like in society, whereas us, we're like, oh, what does this have to do with my identity? And how will my community um, and my family and everybody look at me if uh, they know this is what I'm doing? Will I, will I, they turn their backs on me? Will I be the, like the further the black sheep or whatever it is? You know, will I still be the one that's disproportionately enforced upon um, when it comes to regulatory um, compliance? You know, like. How how is this going to work? If we already see patterns of uh, our community being uh, negatively enforced upon, how is that pattern going to continue as we move forward? Our institution is yet to have those conversations about where are those uh, where is that law enforcement money going? You wanted to enforce, but are you doing anything to train them to be able to enforce in a way that meets with the new society we're trying to build? Or are you going to perpetuate the same militaristic policing structures on the brown and black community that they've already done? Yeah, I mean, the history obviously is is awful um, when you are talking about legalizing marijuana or, or the cannabis industry. You get people saying like, well, I mean, it's crazy that this is happening when people are in jail for small amounts or that like, you know, majority black and brown populations are still targeted or it's used as an excuse to like go through someone's whole car or whatever. I mean, is that like a barrier that comes up where you were talking about people being scared to enter the industry because they're like, I'm not, this is a trick somehow, which I would absolutely a hundred percent feel. <laughs> I mean, I feel that way and I'm a lawyer, <laughs> you know, I looked at some of the models around me in law school where Stanford criminal, um, justice center, like the law school has a program called project remade. And Project Remade is all about reentry and entrepreneurship training um, with Stanford caliber lawyers and other mentors coming to teach the formerly convicted and work with them on their business plans, right? Like, ideally, you would see something like that in a statewide equity system for California. Um, you would see that on the local level in these communities if they were to license. So Oakland is an example of a city. LA is an example. San Francisco are cities that you know, recognize that there's this market demand. They realize that if they wanted to curtail federal enforcement under the Obama administration, um, they needed to have a robust regulatory system 
So to help stem the tide of arrests, we had to come up with something. And in these cities, they at least acknowledge that the thing that they came up with has to put um, you know, social justice at the forefront. And those people who created and sustained the illicit marketplace as um, the priority folks for creating a new licensed lawful, state lawful marketplace. When I entered into the cannabis industry in 2014, um, I, I entered at the end of 2014 because my brother was sentenced to a year at Rikers Island in New York, right, which is one of the most notorious jails in the country um, because it's filthy in there, one, uh, completely dirty, um, and also the guards are almost as violent and as rude as, you know, what you would think would be locked up in a jail. You know, so the entire environment is completely toxic. My brother was sitting there for cannabis, right? And I was going to my very first business conference at the Hilton Hotel in the financial district of San Francisco. And the, they had all these people that were doing like international cannabis talks. What does international weed look like? And it was baffling to me that my brother would be sitting there um, with a big felony like letter on his forehead and these people in suit like these white people in suits are like yeah in 10 years we're going to do international shipping you're like what i paid almost a thousand dollars to go to a vip party and to be able to go um to the two-day conference and the best thing that came out of that is that i met the supernova our other supernova co-founder amber center and she was literally the only person of color um, giving any remarks at that conference. And uh, all the while, my brother was calling me from jail, um, just trying to stay healthy and sane. And it's, and then, I don't know, like, I mean, there's a lot of, people talk about the potential, and I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot, of it to, like, be an opportunity for balancing inequality. Is that sort of how you're seeing it, getting particularly black women into can the cannabis industry? Well, women of color in, in general. Uh, um, yes. Not just, a, not just the black community, but Latino community, the Cambodian, Filipino, Laos communities, like communities that also have a long history of growing cannabis in, in California, you know, or selling cannabis in California. Um, I mean, to your question... I am optimistic that markets will correct themselves and the overly capitalized, overly ambitious person may not actually find that they have their um, market dominance that they planned for. And I can say, at least from my perception interfacing in California, yes, we're a very large economy, global, lots of interest coming to the table, but people are aware in particular jurisdictions because the game in California is local that um, certain cities care more about having businesses operated by their residents than hearing that a multi-state business is coming and setting up shop. Um, that's not an exciting press release for people. I mean, another thing is because there's also this disparity of education, now with the young people I'm working with or, or just kind of consulting with, I'm like, okay, well, guess what? Now you got to learn business math, but you have something to apply, to apply it to. So this is business math in the, in the sense of cannabis products. So it's tangible for them. It's something that they can they can see themselves motivated um, to really step up and learn all these other skill sets that they should have learned before, but didn't have anything to relate it to because of like how 
um, emotionally and mentally taxing some of the violence in our communities are, not only um, from other community members, but also from, like, a paramilitary police system, you know, they like, which is hard to just be able to focus on. Oh, is it hard to learn in a police state? That's weird. I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Why would that be hard? Um, so you're, what you're talking about a little bit before was, like, cottage licensing, right? Like, the ways that, like, policies that could be effective in creating space for people of color and victims of the war on drugs in the legal cannabis industry? Yeah, so, um, you know, what we've seen in Massachusetts and what we've seen in California are different approaches to um, offering opportunity. So I'll talk a little bit about Massachusetts because I'm sure people get tired of us talking about California so much. Um, so with Massachusetts, they had, um, there's two opportunities. First, they had this opportunity for people to register as economic empowerment organizations, so organizations that have been known to work in communities to help the um, disadvantaged to become self-sustaining. Um, those applicants and people who got approved um, can then be issued priority licenses. Then second to that is the um, social equity program, which is similar to what we described around San Francisco and Oakland and LA. But for Massachusetts, the way it's structured there is that there are specific licenses that will only be available to those populations. So um, social consumption lounges and delivery services. And our experience when it comes to consumption and our experience when it comes to delivery is that consumption is the area where the most enforcement happens against people of color. So when I was on Oakland's Cannabis Regulatory Commission as the mayor's appointee, we had a study um, that the police had to provide every year, and it was around the arrests and convictions in Oakland for marijuana offenses. And you saw that one of the leading causes for police interaction with Oakland's um, black and brown population was because of being in public consuming. And when you think about the limited spaces where people who live in, you know, multifamily housing, have children, you know, may have roommates or other restrictions, like go, taking it to the streets is where a lot of people have to go. So in Massachusetts, they're trying to correct for that by having the population that was most prosecuted be able to offer safe spaces for consumption. You know, it's kind of a harm reduction model there. Um, and then second to that is the idea of the delivery service as the lowest barrier to entry. So, you know, Nina's been operating, um, her brother, she and her brother had operated delivery service under our 420 and 215 laws here in California. And our, our observation just generally as an organization is that a lot of people who come to the space, women and business owners and people of color, you know, we can't just get a farm. We don't have real estate. Um, we can't necessarily do extraction because we don't have access to lab equipment. But if we can you know, bridge the gap between the farmer and the end user, delivery services are one way of doing so because we are used to having a convenient economy. Um, so thinking of ways in which the delivery service option is a way to grow and scale has been really important to us. We definitely uh, spend a lot of time reading and processing the regulatory structure with the lens of social justice, um, which is very different than the most people that are looking at these regulations. They, they look at it and they're like, okay, is this good for my business? But we're, when Supernova looks at the regs and makes its reg recommendation, it's um, how, are, how is this doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people in our community? This whole season has been about issues that we don't often think of as money related. But I'd venture to say that marijuana may be our most intersectional topic yet. 
We've talked before on the show about the ways that the criminal justice system traps people in poverty and about the ways that black people have been systemically shut out of economic opportunity, depriving entire communities of the opportunity to build wealth and set themselves up for long-term financial well-being. This feels like a moment where it's happening again, and it doesn't have to be this way. If your state is considering legalization, make sure your elected officials know it can't come at the expense of the communities that have suffered disproportionately in the war on drugs. And if you live in a state where weed is already legal, ask where it's coming from and buy from people who would benefit from the relaxing of restrictions that have decimated their communities in the past. Unlike so many of the things we talk about on Bad With Money, it might not actually be too late to make a difference. Plus, you can get high at the same time. I'm just kidding. You don't always get high. Sometimes you just chill and sleep. <laughs> I'm not a big weed smoker. Is that clear? I'm a narc. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who are already rich from investing in marijuana stocks. Tell them to donate their profits to Supernova. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Sam Dingman, and Cameron Drews. We're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you, Deadbeats, next week. <laughs>